this morning we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're going to be making it to the midway point of a three-part series of, of studies uh, that I've titled An Appeal, An Audience, and a Witness, which we're covering in Acts chapter 25, verse 12, all the way through chapter 26, verse 32. And in part two today, we're going to be uh, studying verses 1 through 18 of Acts 26. But just for some quick context here, at the beginning of Acts chapter 25, we saw this changing of the guards happen there in the region of Judea and Syria, um, in that province under the Roman Empire, as there was a governor uh, that was removed. The governor Felix was removed. The governor Festus was installed. The, the Jewish religious leaders wasted no time. They went to meet their new governor. They made criminal accusations against Paul again, just as they did with Felix. They, they cried out for Paul to be executed for the crimes they had accused him of. And this led to Paul eventually invoking his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to be judged by Caesar Nero. So, that happened, that's where the rest of the book of Acts is flowing out of now, contextually. Everything is now going to track Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome as a prisoner in chains. But then we saw King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up, this weird kind of incestuous relationship between this brother and sister. They're here in Caesarea, they came to greet the new governor, Festus. Festus explains Paul's case to King Agrippa in order to get Agrippa's help. Hey, man, like, I don't even know what to write about Paul to send with him to Caesar. And that's going to look really bad on me. So I, <laughs> help a brother out. Like, hook a brother up. Like, let's, let's get this thing going. Like, let's see what you can <laughs> help me to write about him. And, and so with a lot of pomp, the following day, the auditorium there, likely on the beach of Caesarea Maritime, King Agrippa and Bernice, there's Festus the governor, all these high-ranking military officials, they all show up into the auditorium, and they bring out this lowly, humble, chained Jewish prisoner named Paul, because King Agrippa said, look, I, I want to hear him for myself. I, I want to listen to what he has to say. Who's this guy that, you know, largely the Jewish nation and, and the majority of the Jewish religious leaders want dead? As we began to see last week and will continue to see today and also next week, Paul's appeal has led now to Paul having an audience, which is now going to lead to Paul having this open door. We see Jesus giving him to testify about Jesus. And in this open door, we really see Jesus making good on what he spoke about Paul over 20 years earlier when he told a man named Ananias who he was going to send to Saul who was blinded and waiting for further instruction in Damascus that Saul was going to bear the name of Jesus before kings. And now that prophetic word of Jesus is going to begin 
to be fulfilled as Paul gets to witness to King Agrippa. And the Lord has been preparing Paul for this. This is, this is all part of God's will for Paul's life. This, this situation seemingly may have been out of control, but it wasn't from God's perspective. And as we're going to see, Paul's going to embrace this opportunity with joy. And so with all that in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 26. Luke recording this here, he says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. I I just want us to consider up front, first of all, the attitude of the Apostle Paul here. The way that Paul valued people, the way that he gave honor to people who were living contrary to the ways of the Lord. Remember, Bernice, as I said, and Agrippa, they're in this weird, incestuous relationship. It was, it was a known rumor at the time. It was, it was likely fact that this was happening. Paul would have known about this, and, and he didn't act weird towards them you know you imagine even the family history dynamic of the things that we considered last week of these two individuals who their father was that he was responsible for killing the apostle james who their great uncle was that he was responsible for having john the baptist beheaded who their great grandfather was the one who tried to murder jesus but instead decided to murder tons of infants under the age of two when jesus was born you can imagine being in paul's shoes knowing all of this and feeling like i don't really want to share with these people these people are jacked up their family's jacked up like they're weird that whole dynamic is weird i don't even know how to navigate that like how do you navigate knowing what was going on there and and yet paul just is like i'm happy i'm so happy that i get to talk to you you know some of us when we're around people are like oh i don't even know what to say sometimes we know certain things and we're like i just i am having a hard time overcoming my own uneasiness here and yet paul he just He spoke to them where they were at, where they were at, the things that they were dealing with, the immorality that existed. And he's like, I'm happy to talk to you. I'm happy. Let's do this. I want to share Jesus with you. And right away, we see that Paul extends out his hands. And remember, he's in chains. He's like, it's not like he's just like, hey, everything's great. He's like, I'm. Like, hey, like, look at the chains. Like, I'm happy. How do you find happiness when your your hands are bound? It has to be something deeper. It has to be a result of the work of God in your life. 
And, and I can imagine even at this point that there was things that God was using in Paul's demeanor. In the way that Paul carried himself that already maybe some walls were being broken down. In the lives of those to where at the end of Paul sharing King Agrippa is going to go look I. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Like how do you get from this point to that point. The spirit of God was working. Paul wastes no time he. Begins to address King Agrippa, who he considered to be an expert, and that word expert just mean, meaning to be knowledgeable in all customs and questions which had to do with the Jews. In fact, at this time, King Agrippa, in his rule, was over the temple in Jerusalem. He was over the storehouses and the finances of the temple, and actually, he had the authority under Rome. To install any high priest that he desired. So this man was had a lot of authority within the nation of Israel at that point in time. And Paul says, look, I'm happy. I'm blessed. He uses the same word that Jesus uses in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man. That same word blessed is the word that Paul uses here. I'm blessed. I'm happy to be able to talk to you, Agrippa, about all these things that the religious leaders are accusing me of. And he asked Agrippa to hear him patiently. And in light of that, this is one of the most lengthy uh, speeches that Paul gives in the entire book of Acts. So he's like, hey, I'm going to talk for a while. So just like... Hear me out, be patient, like, don't lose it. I feel like I need to say that at the same time. And, you know, because I can be lengthy anyways. So, and, and though it might seem as we kind of get through chapter 26, as we track our way through, that, that Paul's on trial here, he's actually not. Paul's appeal in chapter 25 has solidified him going to Rome to stand before Caesar Nero. So, it, nothing that he says is, you know, uh, King Agrippa, Festus, these, these people don't have any authority to change sort of the outcome here. So this is really more of just a hearing. But, but now in verses 4 through 11, Paul's going to share about who he was and, and what he was like before he met and was saved by Jesus. And this is now the second time we're, we're seeing Paul share his testimony with others. The first time being in Acts 22. And so let's, let's continue on this account into verses 4 through 8. Paul says, My manner of life, verse 4, from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul begins his testimony by sharing about his upbringing. 
You know, though Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, much of his youth was actually spent in Jerusalem among his fellow Jews. And that was a fact that was known by all the Jews. Now, Paul's not saying, you know, every potential Jew in the Palestinian area knows about me. He, he's referring more specifically to the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders know all of this about me. They know these facts. They know me. I know them. They knew him from his youth. And they knew that according to the strictest sect of Judaism, that Paul lived as a Pharisee. They knew all of this. And if they had been present... They could testify that what Paul was saying was true, but Paul says, if they were willing to testify at all. Like, even if they're here, they know these things to be true, but I'm not sure that they would even sort of take the stand, if you will, to verify these things, because they just really hate my guts. And though Paul lived that strict life of a Pharisee, He was now judged for the hope of the promise made by God to the fathers. I want us to notice here that Paul is taking the same sort of approach as he did with the governor Felix. In order to show that he was not some heretic, he wasn't some cult leader of a non-approved illegal religion like the religious leaders were accusing him of being. But that Paul's belief system was rooted in the historic Judaistic beliefs and promises made by Yahweh to the Jews. And that he shared the same hope as the 12 tribes of Israel had. A hope that he said he was now being judged for. And Paul is making it clear that God raising the dead was not some new teaching or occurrence. Job even alludes to a resurrection. Daniel and Isaiah speak prophetically about a coming resurrection. There are psalms that speak of those who are dead living again at some point. The resurrection was not some New Testament, newfangled teaching that no one ever knew about. This was part of the historic Jewish faith. And on top of that, people rising from the dead was not some new thing either. There are at least three situations in the Old Testament where someone died and they were brought back to life. Elijah the prophet had one of those situations. Elisha the prophet had one of those situations. And then there's some dude who falls into a grave. Or actually they put a dead guy into a grave where a prophet was. And that guy comes back to life when he touches the the bones of the prophet who had been buried there. Not to mention when Jesus rose from the grave, we're told in one of the gospel accounts that many of the saints actually came out of the tombs and were walking around the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine how weird that was for people? There's Uncle Bobby. Like we buried him two years ago. 
what is happening? <laughs> it happened, though. People saw this. The problem was the religious leaders opposed that. And so that's why, if we remember, and I, I can't remember if I shared this last week or not, but Paul bought into the same things that, that the religious leaders instigated initially when Jesus rose. Remember, the, the, the guards that they had at Jesus' tomb saw the angels that rolled away the, the stone. They knew that something happened. They knew that Jesus' disciples didn't come in the night and steal Jesus' body away to perpetrate some lie that he had rose from the dead. They came to the religious leaders and told them what happened. They told them that the angels came. And they said, look, don't tell anybody that. They paid him off. They said, tell everyone that Jesus' disciples came. So even the religious leaders knew that Jesus rose. People in Jerusalem knew that some of the saints that were dead were, were in the tombs came out that day. But there was this trying to hush down. We don't want anybody to know about Jesus because it's going to ruin our thing that we have going on. People aren't going to follow our thing anymore. They're going to follow after Jesus and we're going to lose all of our authority. Just shows you how jacked up the, the religious state of the religious leaders were. And not just at Jesus' time, but moving forward, because Paul bought into that. Paul's making clear, making it clear, the hope of a coming resurrection was found in the Old Testament. That instances of God raising people from the dead was found in the Jewish scriptures. And if God spoke about a promised resurrection to the Jews of old... And if God raised people from the dead in ancient times, why would it be ridiculous to think that God could still raise the dead presently? And the prime example of that being Jesus' resurrection. Why would it be ridiculous that there was still a promise of a resurrection to come, both of the just and the unjust, the living and the dead? This was the question in verse 8 that Paul asked King Agrippa, who was knowledgeable of Jewish law and customs, but also seemed to be knowledgeable about and believed in the Old Testament prophets as well. And we actually learn this from something that Paul's going to say to Agrippa later on. But if Agrippa did think it was incredible or unbelievable or impossible, Paul in verse 9 is going to let Agrippa know, you know what? Even he thought at one point in time that Jesus' resurrection didn't happen before he met the risen, living Jesus. And so now he continues on in verses 9 through 11. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." 
I, I can't imagine being Paul and sharing this part of my testimony. Like, let's think about ourselves. Let's think about our own lives. And, and maybe for some of us, before we met Jesus, maybe before we were saved by Jesus, maybe there was some moralistic living. Maybe actually you were a pretty upstanding person. You were, maybe you were doing a lot of the right things. Paul morally was spot on. But spiritually, in the way that his zeal worked itself out against Jesus and his followers, it was horrible. The things he did were horrible. And how many of us, if we were to share our testimony, would want to hold that part back? Let me pick and choose what parts of my testimony I want to share with you. Let me just kind of, let me generalize. I was a pretty bad person. Oh, okay. Bad like you stole a piece of gum when you were five? Bad like you killed people? Like, what kind of bad are we talking about here? And Paul doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells this king and Bernice and Festus and all the high-ranking, I mean, all the who's who. Like, I want you guys to know how messed up I was before Jesus saved me. And it was not something that Paul was proud of. It's not like he was smiling. Man, I did this. Paul had regret. I believe Paul had regret because we see it in what, how Paul describes himself even later on from this. When he says that I w- I'm not worthy to be an apostle. That I'm the chief of sinners. These are things even after this, later on from this, that Paul declares about himself. Is he saying I'm the chief of sinners because I'm... I'm caught up in all this sinful living. No, he's looking back to the things that he did. And he's going, I can't believe that Jesus would save me. Jesus, why would you save me? Not only did I kill your people, I caused them to renounce your name. Can you imagine living with that for the rest of your life? Not just murder, not just that you took a life. You caused people who put their faith in Jesus Christ to actually say, I don't believe in Jesus because of whatever threats you were making against them. And I just want us to think about our, each of us this morning, just for a moment, who we were. Again, could be very moralistic. We could... Maybe we look back and we're going, I don't have much of a testimony. Yeah, I put my faith in Jesus, but it's not like I was saved out of this crazy living. But you know what you were saved from? You were saved from a place of actually being dead. You were dead. Spiritually, you were completely dead. You had nothing to offer God. You were fully in your sin. Maybe it wasn't blatantly, outwardly, look at how horrible my sin is. But before the eyes of God, one sin makes you a sinner. You're born with a sin nature. You and me were born with that. And instantly were separated from God and would be for all eternity. But God. 
if God hadn't intervened in our lives, if he hadn't interrupted us at some point in time like he did with the Apostle Paul, you and I would not be any different than anybody else out there who's not yet received Jesus Christ. There was regret, but Paul didn't allow the regret to hold him back from sharing what Jesus saved him from. And you and I can learn things from this. Of being bold in helping others to see that Jesus can transform them too. That Jesus can save them too. Because Paul, before he met and was saved by Jesus, didn't believe Jesus rose. Which would mean that Jesus was all he said he was. God in human flesh, savior of humanity. Paul said, look, I I thought I had to do a lot of things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And because of that belief, he violently opposed and was hostile to the name of Jesus and to Jesus' disciples. First in Jerusalem, and then into foreign cities. Again, that blaspheming would speak of a a compelling, a pressuring, as he found Jewish believers of Jesus in the synagogues to try and get them to speak against Jesus. And because he was exceedingly enraged in that, those words in the Greek carry the sense of being extremely angry to the point of obsession or seeming insanity. Because he was exceedingly enraged, he wasn't content with just persecuting Jesus' people in Jerusalem. I gotta find them everywhere. We gotta stamp them out wherever they are. And this is what led Paul, then Saul of Tarsus, To make his way to Damascus, where everything changed. But but Paul is now going to shift gears. He's going to move away from talking about who he was and what he was like before he met and was saved by Jesus. And he's now going to share in verses 12 through 18 about when he met and was saved by and was commissioned by Jesus. And so let's read verses 12 through 15 as we get into that section of verses there. Verse 12, Paul continues, while thus occupied, while I was in that state of being exceedingly enraged and persecuting the foreign cities, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. And saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As Paul recounts to King Agrippa, his experience on the Damascus road, it's clear that the Man, he was at that point in time, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a persecutor of Jesus' followers, was not looking for Jesus. 
He was looking for Jesus' disciples. He was not looking for Jesus. He didn't think Jesus was alive. And he had no intention of becoming a follower of Jesus personally. Paul was exceedingly enraged against the disciples of Jesus. He was doing everything he could to oppose the name of Jesus. And it took an act of divine intervention by the hand and power of God himself for Saul to not fulfill his mission that he had been given the authority and commission from the chief priests to carry out. And it could only be because of an act of divine intervention, an act of God himself, a miraculous encounter with the resurrected living Jesus himself, that Saul would so radically have a change of heart and mind and course of life and action and vocation to depart from his former commission to leave behind his life as part of the Pharisees and to not only not oppose the name of Jesus and to not only not persecute Jesus' followers, but actually become a worshiper and disciple of Jesus whose whole life became consumed with wanting to lead others to know and live for and love Jesus and, and then help other disciples of Jesus grow in their relationship with him. But, but how that happened, Paul explains in these verses. And it all centers on him seeing and hearing and experiencing the resurrected and living Jesus personally as he was on the road to Damascus to destroy the lives of more Christ followers. Again, he wasn't looking for Jesus, but it's clear in this portion as Paul retells this account that Jesus was looking for him. And maybe some of us could say the same thing. I wasn't looking for Jesus. It's not like I was just making myself so attractive to him. Look at all these things I'm doing. Look, Lord, I'm, I'm seeking after you. Some of us were not seeking truth at all, and yet Jesus found us. Maybe some of us were just kind of hell-bent to just keep on that road to destruction, and yet Jesus interrupted the, the, the way of thinking that we had that maybe to others seemed like there's no way this person will ever become a follower of Jesus. And yet, God did it. That was true for Saul of Tarsus. And maybe for Agrippa, as Saul shares these things, Maybe Agrippa was in a similar place. He's not looking for Jesus. He's living for himself. He's living for his power. He's living for pleasure. And, And Paul's going, look, like, even if, King Agrippa, you're not seeking after Jesus, Jesus wants to interrupt your life. <laughs> you, maybe you're not looking for Jesus, but Jesus is looking for you. I love that as Paul shares this, he says, he he addresses him personally. At midday, O king. He's just speaking right to Agrippa. That 
that we would be able to speak to people where they're at by the leading of the Spirit. I don't think Paul said the same thing or shared the same thing every single time. I think Paul was just like, Lord, what do you have? What do you want me to say? Because every person's different. Every person's story's different. Maybe the things that they're needing to hear from the Lord are different. We, we live in an area where there's so much of like, I've made it. I've, look at what I've made for myself. We're self-sufficient. I don't need anything. I've, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I think a lot of people here in the barrio come from that sort of perspective. Some of us are like, no, that's not me. But there's, a, there's quite a few people. And I think that's a huge challenge for us. I think it can be easier to think when we're in an area that's maybe filled with more poverty or more perceived need for us to be able to share Jesus because that perceived need helps them to see that real need that they have for Jesus. And yet, regardless of the perceived need, there is a deep spiritual need that exists we see it, we know it, because that was true for us. And we might look around and we're going, how do I reach people around here? They don't think they need Jesus because they don't think that they need anything. But they do. And, and there's this longing that exists in every person for, for the thing that only Jesus can fulfill. And we see that longing played out in so many different ways. People are pursuing, maybe it's not an immoral life, maybe it's not a life lived for pleasure and excess, but maybe it's a life lived for success. It's a life lived for greater financial stability, more in my bank account. Maybe it's a life lived for my hobbies. That can play out in in so many different ways. And we see in that a a deeper longing as people who have been saved by Jesus. To be able to be praying for those people and then have that openness to the leading of the Spirit. To know how the Spirit of God would lead us in conversation. To be able to direct them to Jesus who alone can satisfy that deep spiritual need that exists whether they know that that's there or not. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for him. It was at midday, Paul says, when a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, so this is obviously a supernatural occurrence here, occurrence, shines around him and those with him Saul and those with him fall to the ground. And as Saul lays there, he hears this voice speaking to him in the Hebrew language. And that voice knew who Saul was. And not only did that voice know who Saul was, he let Saul know that Saul was persecuting him. And that Saul was kicking against the goads. 
that there was some sort of prodding that had been happening by Jesus in the life of Saul of Tarsus, and Saul was fighting it. I think that goading happened way back when Stephen was martyred. As Saul of Tarsus is hearing Stephen speak about Jesus, as Saul saw Stephen say, I see the heavens opened and and, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and, and, and Stephen saying, Father, forgive them, these people who are about to stone him to death. I think those things were a goad in Saul's life for years to come. And Saul had to, up, you know, he tried to suppress that part of the convicting work of the Spirit of God in his life. And you and I don't see those things in someone else's life. I mean, from an outside perspective, we wouldn't go, I think, I think this person's really struggling. You know, when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he has those papers to imprison any disciples of Jesus, he found, I don't think anybody around Saul was going, I think Saul's really struggling with this whole killing Christians thing. I think everyone else around Saul would have been like, this guy's ballistic. Like, he's out of control. Like, he's got no conscience. And Jesus going, you've been fighting me. And it, you know what, for us, as we share with people, as we pray with people, sometimes we look at people and we're like, I don't see any impact from this. I've shared my testimony. I've tried to be a faithful witness. I've tried to love them with the love of Jesus. I've prayed for them consistently. I'm not seeing anything outwardly. Don't grow discouraged. The Spirit of God goads people in ways that you and I just can't see. We have to trust in the goading work of the Spirit of God. We gotta, we gotta trust that Jesus has that. He just knows right where to nudge people. He knows right where to prod people. Long after you've stopped talking to them, long after you've been sharing with them that, that Jesus is working. Jesus didn't stop working in Saul's life. He didn't give up on Saul. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus did not give up on Saul with everything that Saul did. Imprisoning, killing, causing Jesus' people to blaspheme. Jesus did not give up on Saul. And he's not going to give up on your kid. He's not going to give up on your friend. He's not going to give up on your parent or your sibling or your aunt or uncle or your cousin or your coworker, those people, Jesus is after them, just like he was after you and me. He wants them to be saved just as badly as he wanted us to be saved. You and I weren't some special thing that he's like, well, I just really came for them. It's okay if everyone else goes to hell. That's not Jesus's mo it's not his mindset he desires that all would come to repentance and none would perish all Saul didn't know the voice that spoke to him but he knew that he needed to humble himself and obey whoever that was 
And so he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What a powerful moment. You know, Paul is letting Agrippa know that he wasn't just guilty of persecuting the disciples of Jesus, but that he was guilty of persecuting Jesus himself by persecuting Jesus' people. And I just love the humility of Paul here. How humbling to just put yourself out there in this sort of way before someone like Agrippa and all these officials. He's letting Agrippa know he'd been like a stubborn animal kicking against a goad. That Jesus had been trying to get Saul's attention in order to get Saul's heart. But that Saul had been fighting against Jesus and yet Jesus so graciously and mercifully and patiently and faithfully was still after Saul. Not to punish him, but to save him. And Paul's letting Agrippa know here that Jesus was not dead. He's alive. And he pursued after Saul, even though Saul was doing everything he could to destroy the name of Jesus. And if Jesus would pursue after and want to save someone like Saul of Tarsus, he definitely was pursuing after and wanted to save someone like King Agrippa too and the rest of those who were present in that altar. I mean, that's true for every person in our life. But let's see what Jesus continued to speak to Saul in that Damascus Road encounter, verses 16 through 18. Paul recounting what Jesus spoke to him there. He says, but rise, Jesus speaking, and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul lay blinded on that Damascus road. Jesus told him to rise and stand that he had appeared to Saul with the purpose of making Saul a minister meaning a servant, to make him a witness. And witnesses testify of what they've seen and heard and experienced personally. Both of the things that Saul at that point had now seen, but also the things that Jesus would yet reveal to him. Not only did Jesus not hate Saul, not want to destroy Saul, not want to send Saul to hell, Jesus actually wanted To save Saul and to use him for his purposes and glory. See, the religious leaders were using Saul for their purposes. He was a pawn in their hand to bring destruction, to end life. Jesus is like, I want to save you and I want to recommission you. Not to use you as a pawn, not to have you be someone who's ending life, but actually... To be an instrument in my hand who helps to bring life to those who are, who are currently dead in sin. But, but this new life, this commission that Jesus was inviting Saul into and giving to him was not going to make him light. It wasn't going to make him accepted by all those who Jesus was 
going to send him to, it was also going to be dangerous. Saul was going to need to be delivered from the Jewish people and also from the Gentiles. But it was Jesus who was going to provide the deliverance. And Paul here was helping Agrippa to know that it was not a light or easy thing for him to surrender his life to Jesus and become a follower of Jesus and walk in the calling of Jesus for his life, which would speak further to Agrippa about the truthfulness of what Paul was sharing about his meeting with Jesus, where Jesus saved him, but also would speak further to Agrippa Agrippa about the reality of the authority and power of Jesus. See, Agrippa's position as a king did not exempt or excuse him from needing to surrender his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And even in Saul's first interaction with Jesus, in that moment where Jesus humbled him and brought him to a place of putting his faith in Jesus, we see Jesus made his plan known to Saul. That Saul's ministry would be to the Gentiles primarily. Jesus was sending Saul to the Gentiles because Jesus wanted to use Saul in his plan to save the Gentiles. And I had a lot more I wanted to share about that, but we're out of time. So (laughs) we'll get into that more next week. But I just want us to consider things here just in, in closing. As we kind of, you know, obviously there's sort of this personal responsibility as saved people. That Jesus wants to use saved people to save other people. I, I hope we get that. I, I, I hope we grab a hold of that. I, 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 I feel like I can't encourage us enough in those things. And yet at the same time, we, have, we remember that even when Jesus called his disciples, I think it's Mark chapter 3, I've, I've shared this before, but it says that Jesus called to himself those that he himself wanted, that they'd be with him and that he might send them out to preach and all these other things. But just that with Jesus part. Just to be with Jesus. Just to know what Jesus has done for us. Because, you know, for us to just go, okay, just go out. Just tell others about Jesus. Without fully being moved by and embracing what Jesus has done in our lives. How good Jesus has been to us. It's we're just going to find ourselves going through the motions and trying to give Jesus to someone else if we're not first just going, but Jesus, you've been given to me. Jesus, you've done these things in me. Because these things that Jesus speaks to Saul at that point in time when he was first saved are the things that Jesus has done in us. He's opened our eyes. We were blind and he opened our eyes. He helped us to see. We were those who were living in darkness. We were completely given over to the things of Satan. We were under his authority. Even if maybe our lives looked good outwardly, the spiritual reality was that we were under the power, the rule of Satan. You and I had no power to stop sinning. You ever try to stop sinning when you were, before you were saved from your sin? You just sinned in other things. You could stop a behavior, but that didn't stop. That way down deep, you just had no, there was no self-control. There was no, no power, no spirit power 
to overcome that part of your flesh. And yet Jesus has taken us out of the darkness. He's brought us into his marvelous light. Jesus took us from the power of Satan, and now we get to experience the power of God himself. We were those who were just immersed in our sins, but now we've been forgiven so much so that the Bible says that he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That he's removed our sins, that he's cast them into the deepest ocean, that he chooses to remember them no more. He's forgiven us. And we've been given an inheritance, a share in the family of God. We were once separated from God by our sin, but now we've been sanctified. We've been made holy unto our God. And those things that God has done, man, would we be able to turn around and just praise Him for to just love him for. That that love for God would lead us in a love for others. That understanding of the grace that God has given us, that it would so radically impact our hearts that we couldn't help but then extend that grace of Jesus to others. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. You know, maybe today we just need to be reminded of who we once were before Jesus met us, before Jesus saved us. Maybe we just need to be reminded of how Jesus pursued after us and loved us even at our worst. And then reminded of what Jesus has accomplished for us in saving us, what we've been saved from, but also who we've been saved to. It's not just like, oh, I... He saved us from hell. You're just not now going to hell. It's like, he saved us from that, but he's also saved us for himself. We get him. We get to have him for all eternity. Be encouraged and strengthened today in light of what Jesus has done in each of us who have received his salvation. But look, if you're here and you've never first just put your faith in Jesus Christ... That, that, that reality, that spiritual reality is that you're blind and in darkness and under the power of Satan. You're separated from God by your sin. But Jesus has made, made the way for us. We're sanctified by faith in Him. We're made holy by faith in Him. Not because we were good enough, but because Jesus is good. Because Jesus paid the price for you and me. And that invitation is being extended today for any who will put their faith in Him. Any who will humble themselves and repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And I want to give us that opportunity this morning, if there's anybody here and you're going, look today, that I, I need Jesus' forgiveness. I need his salvation. Would you stand where you're at if that's anybody here? And give this opportunity to, to make that public declaration of what Jesus 
that you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, Lord, is a room of people, Lord, and I don't know where everybody's at, Lord, you do. But maybe some who have joined us, Lord, they, they do need your salvation. Lord, their, their eyes, their spiritual eyes are blind. They're living in darkness. Under the power of Satan, they're, they're separated from you by their sin. They're on the road leading to destruction. And Jesus, what they're needing is you. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, that they confess their sins to you. Turn away from those sins, Lord, and turn to you by faith. Lord, put their trust in you. Ask you, Lord, to save them and to forgive them. To make them a new creation in Christ Jesus. To seal them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you be doing that even now? Lord, maybe those who have wandered from you, Lord. Maybe they know you personally, but God, they've been caught up in other things. And Lord, you're calling them to return. Lord, that in their hearts, God, that they, that recommitment would happen, that that fresh surrender would happen once again, Lord, before you. But Lord, for all of us this morning, God, will you be encouraged, Lord, will you be strengthened as we consider, Jesus, what you've done for us. Lord, who we once were, but Lord, who we are now because of your shed blood, your salvation, your justification, Lord. The work, the ongoing sanctifying work of your spirit in our lives. God, thank you. God, would we be stirred to be people who bring the gospel of Jesus that saved our souls to others, Lord, who need their souls saved as well. God, would we sing this morning in response to your word as people, Lord, whose hearts have been touched. Lord, as people who have been met and saved by the risen and living and ascended Jesus. Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy of all of our praise, Lord. You're worthy of every part of our lives to be surrendered before you. And God, as we take of the communion elements, Lord, would we remember, Jesus, what you did, what you accomplished on the cross for us. Lord, as the prayer counselors are there, that Lord, those that need prayer would take advantage of that opportunity and be prayed for this morning. But Lord, we just thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. God, send us out today, people who are filled with the joy and peace and hope of Jesus. In, in the midst of a world that's full of chaos, the Lord, our eyes would be continually fixed upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.